Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. I am Sarah Jane Case, and this is Enneagram and Coffee. Hi friends, happy Monday. I hope your weekend treated you well. Today we're going to begin a two-part series on health without self-hate. How do we prioritize feeling healthy without succumbing to diet culture? But first, today's rosebud and thorn. My rose right now are the azaleas. I just think they're magical. They're so beautiful. Watching them kind of come to life every spring is breathtaking. My thorn is going to be pretty vague, but I had a pretty rough start to the morning, got some stressful news, not pumped about it, can't really talk about it, but that's my thorn. My bud is now that the garden is set up, I can't wait for these little baby plants to fully form and to get to the harvesting stage of all of these veggies and herbs. Okay, so. As I mentioned in the intro today, we are beginning what will be a two-part series on health without succumbing to diet culture. And today I want to introduce a few specific concepts to you. Now, some of you will be relatively familiar with these and others may be hearing them for the first time. But either way, I don't think we can really move on to part two of the conversation without today's episode. So I wanna dive in deep with you. So if the goal of this series is to help you choose health without succumbing to diet culture, it would probably be helpful to discuss what diet culture even is. Diet culture is an eating messaging and honestly the overarching cultural belief that thinness, appearance, and shape are indicative of health and or are more important than overall health and well-being. It prioritizes restricting calories, it normalizes negative self-talk, labels certain foods as good or bad. As people subjected to diet culture, we are conditioned to believe that not only does thinness in dieting equate to health, but that the pursuit of health makes one person morally superior to another, and that thinness takes priority over health. Diet culture is such a large part of our society that it causes us to not only overlook, but to even incentivize disordered eating patterns. Things like skipping meals, restricting calories, excessively exercising, and eliminating certain food groups. This can cause us to miss the early signs of developing an eating disorder, both ours and others. These are things that should be concerning, but are instead looked upon as the ideal. We can track the origination for diet culture to a ton of different things, racism, consumerism, media. I wanna talk a bit about one of the major sources for moralizing health today. The War on Obesity, which is actually essentially initiated by the Bush administration. In order to cover this, I'm going to read to you from the dissertation of Rachel Sanders from the University of Washington, titled The Color of Fat, Racial Biopolitics of Obesity. I'm gonna link to that incredible resource in the show notes for you as well, because she has done some incredible work and she can articulate this better than I could. 
So from Sanders, while I am primarily concerned with the ways in which public health discourses about obesity serve biopower and status quo racial and gender power arrangements, a biopolitical analysis of the obesity epidemic must be supplemented by a political economic account. Understanding the forces behind the mobilization of fat panic requires understanding public health as a vast and heterogeneous network of professionals, public officials, corporations, and organizations whose economic and political interests converge in intricate and potent ways. From a political economic perspective, the logic of expansion inherent to capitalism requires the creation of new markets for health, diet, and body improvement products and services such as weight loss drugs and surgical procedures, and thus the generation of new public health concerns, social stigmas, and personal bodily discontent that drive health-centered consumption. In this profit-driven context, diet product manufacturers, pharmaceutical corporations, the advertising industry, and medical practitioners all have a stake in the diagnosis of the obesity epidemic and the promotion of fat stigma. The perspective illuminates how the national and global war on fat has been instigated by a health industrial complex, or diet industrial complex, built upon the powerful interest convergences of health researchers, government bureaucrats, and drug companies. The goals of this complex, like those of the military-industrial complex, are self-perpetuation, capital gain, and political influence rather than population health improvement resulting from lifestyle changes that may not be consumption-based. Now, we've established that diet culture prevents us from recognizing disordered eating patterns, and we've touched on, through Sanders' work, the economic and political benefits of shaming fat people, and now most people at this time say to me, but Sarah Jane, obesity is unhealthy, to which we invite the theory of health at every size into the conversation. Discourse about health that focus predominantly on body weight is referred to as weight-centered health paradigm or a weight-normative approach to health. This theory proclaims that having a body weight that is classified as overweight or obese is unhealthy. This message manifests in public health and health promotion policies and programs focused on obesity prevention. Now, in recent years, there has been a significant increase in critical analysis of weight-centered health paradigm. This has resulted in arguments for a paradigm that shifts away from focusing on weight and focuses instead on health and well-being. Now, there are a few major critiques of this method of measuring health. First, we have to consider that even if you are fully bought into the paradigm of weight management as a method to health, it's important to note that how we categorize what is or isn't an at-risk body size is inherently flawed. The body mass index, or BMI, being used to categorize what is overweight or obese, most healthcare professionals agree is an ineffective tool for measuring body mass. It's calculated based on height and weight, which ignores muscle mass, bone density, overall body composition, and racial and sex differences. And to carry you away from this idea at all, it's important to know that research shows that you can have an obese BMI and be metabolically healthy, and you can have a normal BMI and be metabolically unhealthy. BMI may be an easier way to categorize weight by population, like on larger studies, but it's not so much a way to assess an individual's health risk without digging further. 
Meaning, again, you could be obese and be healthier than your thin friend, and weight is proven through research to not be a determinative factor of health. There are so many studies on this, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk through briefly one, maybe two with you. In 2008, in JAMA Internal Medicine, in which researchers found that BMI didn't correlate with measures of health, for the study, researchers at Albert Einstein College of Medicine used health data from 5,440 participants originally collected between 1999 and 2004 as part of the CDC's National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys. Along with BMI, they looked at data for blood pressure, cholesterol levels, fasting glucose, often used as a marker of insulin resistance, and high-sensitive C-reactive protein, used as a marker of inflammation. Participants were sorted into categories based on BMI, normal, overweight, and obese, and cardiometabolic health. Results showed that although BMI correlated with metabolic health, there were exceptions. Among women, 78.9% of those with normal BMIs, 57% of those with overweight BMIs, and 35.4% of those with obese BMIs were metabolically healthy. Conversely, 21% of those with normal BMIs, 43% of those with overweight BMIs, and 64% of those with obese BMIs were metabolically unhealthy. This data shows that considerable proportion of overweight and obese U.S. adults are metabolically healthy. The researchers concluded that a considerable proportion of normal weight adults express a clustering of cardiometabolic abnormalities. The observed results, along with the other data at the time, led to the increasing recognition that the disease risks associated with obesity may not be uniform. And I think it's time for one of my favorite quotes from Dr. Yoni Friedhoff, founder and medical director of at the Bariatric Medical Institute in Ontario, Canada. Weight, though it is a piece of information, does not by itself indicate the presence or absence of health. Plenty of really thin people are living horribly unhealthy lives, and people who might be quite a bit overweight, as far as some table or scale would suggest, live very healthfully. In fact, there's an entire exploration of this called the obesity paradox. The obesity paradox is the observation that in some studies, overweight and obesity up to a BMI of 35 is associated with lower risk of death than normal BMIs. Diet culture does not tell us this, right? The people in the comments section don't tell you this. They say, oh, you're gonna die. Actually, <laughs> In some studies, overweight and obese people up to a BMI of 35 are associated with a lower risk of death than normal BMIs. Now, this is a term in research used to describe patterns observed in the literature, which suggests that despite being correlated with an increased risk for developing certain diseases, obesity is also correlated with a reduced risk of dying from several of those conditions. So this invites us into the acceptance of haze or health at every size. It's a movement popular among certain dietitians and healthcare professionals that have accepted the countless studies showing that fat shaming is not an effective route for a healthier world and that health is not directly correlated to body size. It helps us to recognize that health outcomes are primarily driven by social, economic, and environmental factors, requiring an actually a social and political response. 
It also supports people of all sizes in adopting healthy behaviors, not limiting health to only those who look thin or fit. So there are some basic components for the health at every size model. First is accept your size, love and appreciate the body you have. And recognizing that self-acceptance empowers you to move on and make positive changes. Number two, trust yourself. We all have these systems designed to keep us healthy and they support your body in naturally finding what is a good, happy weight for it. Everybody is different. Your body knows when it's hungry, when it's full, and you should trust it. You can adopt healthy lifestyle habits. You can nurture connections with others and look for purpose and meaning in your life. You can fulfill social, emotional, and spiritual needs, restoring food to its rightful place as simply a source of nourishment and pleasure. Number four is find the joy in moving your body and becoming more physically active in your everyday life. Eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, seek out pleasurable and satisfying foods. Number six, tailor your taste so that you enjoy more nutritious foods, staying mindful that there's plenty of room for less nutritious choices in the context of an overall healthy diet and lifestyle. And number seven, embrace size diversity. Humans come in a variety of sizes and shapes, open to the beauty found across the spectrum and support others in recognizing their unique attractiveness. Now, Dr. Bacon is the founder of this concept in their book, they kind of write out this specific contract for what you will do if you're adopting the health at every size model. I'm gonna read that one to you, okay? So today, I will try to feed myself when I'm hungry. Today, I will try to be attentive to how food tastes and makes me feel. Today, I will try to choose foods that I like and that make me feel good. Today, I will try to honor my body's signals of fullness. Today, I will try to find an enjoyable way to move my body. Today, I will try to look kindly at my body and to treat it with love and respect. Okay. I am passionate about this topic and I probably have given you a lot for today, but tomorrow we're going to dive even deeper into this conversation, discussing how this may impact your life and decisions that you make to better support yourself in your own health journey. But for today's food for thought, I want to share a quote from nationaleatingdisorders.org. It is important to remember that every body is different. We all have different genetic and cultural traits. Even if everyone started eating the same things and did the same amount of exercise for a whole year, we would not all look the same at the end of the year. This is because each person's genetic inheritance influences their bone structure, body size, shape, and weight differently. I hope this sets a little part of you free today. It is always such a joy to create this content for you. I cannot wait to see you tomorrow as we can continue this conversation in the next episode. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.